Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. Big episode for you today. Ed Ward and I are talking about 1958, the backlash year. This was the year that Elvis got drafted and Jerry Lee Lewis ruined his career with a bigamous marriage to his 13-year-old cousin. It was also the year that the music business figured out how to package pretty faces with rocking beats and foisted Fabian and Frankie Avalon on the world. But never fear, we'll also be hearing a lot about the wild anarchic spirit that Sam Phillips and Elvis had unleashed, the reinvention of Johnny Cash, the Million Dollar Quartet, the many dramas Lieber and Stoller made with the coasters, and a dance craze called The Stroll. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlist so you can hear the music we've been talking about. But now it's time to plug in those earbuds and hear what Ed has to say. Welcome to Let It Roll. I don't know what episode number this is, but we're talking about 1958, The Backlash. We had the miracle year in 1957, rock and roll, sprang to life, conquered the world, and now people don't like it, are getting back. Whether or not there was a big conspiracy against rock and roll, undetermined. Uh, I kind of think... There was definitely a conspiracy by some people on the Memphis draft board against somebody named Elvis Presley. Yeah, but I don't think. I mean, that was that happened to every kid back then when when there was the draft, and it was real hard to get out of the army. And Elvis didn't want to, you know, and he was still close enough to just being that kid from Hume's High School that that he he figured he should do this without any. Um, special favors. I mean, he he knew that what had happened to him was a fluke, and it could go away at any minute. And he had a duty to to the country, and and so fine. Here we go into the army. It's only a couple of years, and then he can go out and and concentrate on his career, you know, if he still had one. If he didn't, he'd already made a bunch of money. He bought a nice house, you know, for himself and his parents and his grandmother and half a dozen other people who were living there um you know he'd he'd done it so uh it wasn't like there was a conspiracy and and when he had a, a film to make uh which he did uh coming up they, they um they delayed his entry into the army by a month just because sure you know do this yeah and they also offered him various 
entertainment roles or whatever, but he wanted to be a private, just a regular soldier. Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of a lot of entertainers, you know, teenage entertainers when they get drafted, went to work in the USO, you know, but they weren't Elvis Presley. I, I can't imagine Elvis Presley appearing at a USO show. I mean, that would be just chaos and horror for the army. Elvis Presley and Bob Hope touring uh, Europe for three right. years in the late fifties. Yeah, so. <laughs> Would have been an interesting experience, but it is a clear, bright line. There's Elvis before he got drafted, and there's Elvis after he was drafted, and he's never really the same again. Although you could argue that he's already been on RCA Records, Left Sun Records. You could argue that his music is already changing. Well, yeah, I mean, but only in that it's getting more professional. He's still aligned with some of the early people who made him successful, most notably Lieber and Stoller, the songwriting team that um, wrote Hound Dog when they were teenagers themselves back in the early 50s. And, uh, you know, that he he was working with them on, on Jailhouse Rock and, and uh, they were writing good stuff for him. So, you know, there, he wasn't that much changed and he had always wanted to be a crooner. So we were still going to get, you know, the, the religious albums and and the the ballads and stuff like that. I mean, he wanted, his big dream was to record O Sole Mio. Which he would do with different lyrics after he gets all that on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, so he he wasn't, he, I think one of the reasons for his great success was that he wasn't a guy who just wanted to, you know, bang on a guitar and and get girls excited. I, I think he had this dream of being an entertainer. Uh, he had always said that his idol was Dean Martin. Who was a classic all-round entertainer. Started yeah. as part of a comedy team, branched out into music, did movies with his partner Jerry Lewis, then becomes part of the Rat Pack. And if you look at Elvis's big predecessors, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, they absolutely followed. It was a totally normal career path back in the day to go from music to movies. That right. Was, that was where you expressed your story. And then later television. Yeah. And you know, it's not impossible that there could have been an Elvis Presley show, you know, Sunday night at 8 o'clock. Yeah. It, it, I mean, basically anything was possible with yeah. the success that Elvis had and the talent he had. I mean, people don't remember because he did so many bad movies in the 60s. But if you watch the movies he was doing in the late 50s, not just Jailhouse Rock and Love Me Tinder, but also King Creole is a really good movie with a really great soundtrack, mostly by Lieber and Stoller. Right. And it's frustrating to think what he could have done along those lines. Right. If he Well, if he didn't have predatory management. That's the big problem, is that Elvis was passive enough that he just figured that he'd let Colonel Tom Parker do everything for him. Yeah, I mean, supposedly, according to Peter Goralnik biographies, Elvis would have nightmares that the colonel left him, and so did fame, and so did fortune. And so he viewed the colonel as the secret to success. And the colonel was a huge role, getting him on RCA, breaking him out nationally. By all accounts, he was financially honest with Elvis. I mean, he took a huge chunk. Well, he took an unprecedented chunk. But he also paid Elvis. It's not like yeah, some of these managers who just Elv kept all Elvis the money. did get his chunk. Yeah, and even it was, though it was only fifty percent. Yeah, and it was a bigger chunk than it probably would have been with other managers because because Parker was such a vicious negotiator. Well, and yet um, he also had Elvis file ten forty tax forms. Hmm. which lost him a great deal of money. He was like in the 98th, 99th percentile. And that shows 
Parker's limits as basically a carnival huckster. Right. Well, he also didn't want attention drawn to him because he was an illegal immigrant. Uh, He was maybe on the law on the lam from a murder charge in Holland, which is where his actual name was Andreas von Kirk. And, um, you know, he, he had his own demons. Elvis never performed outside of the country, although he did a um, he did a press conference in um, uh, on the way in, to Germany. No, 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 in in um, in Canada. In Canada. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the in British Columbia, Vancouver. He he did a a, a television, I believe, press conference in Vancouver. Uh, because he happened to be in Seattle, and um, when the colonel found out about it, he flipped. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. don't ever do that again. And that's why Elvis never toured England, never toured Europe, never toured Japan. Right, and and as it, it didn't diminish his his appeal in those places, but um, I just imagine what. The British rock and roll scene would have been had there been, you know, a five day tour. Yeah, before would, Elvis went in the army, it would have been a huge, huge change. Look at Buddy Holly. I mean, he's he's revered as a demigod uh, to this day in England, and and yet uh, there's increasingly uh, there's an increasing number of people in the United States who've never heard of him. And I mean, such such is fate and time. But Elvis, I think Colonel Parker's biggest sin was firing Lieber and Stoller and separating him from Elvis. He didn't fire them. He just wanted to cut a sleazy deal. He, His big deal, which Elvis I don't think was a part of, was that he funneled all of the material that Elvis was fed through a private channel of music publishers. Hill and Range. Hill and Range and... and uh, the um, family that ran it were tight partners with him. And as a result, um, unless you were willing to give up a substantial amount of your royalties to Hill and Range, you didn't get to give Elvis any material. And, you know, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller took a look at this, and Jerry was being asked to sign a blank page, which the colonel said, oh, I'll fill it in later. Yeah, you know, I mean, hell you will. <laughs> and that was that for Lieber and Stoller. Other songwriters, though, like Pomus and Schumann and Otis Blackwell, actually worked at Hill and Range. You're right. They were Saturday already signed there. So it was just a matter of paperwork. Uh, Lieber and Stoller did okay. Yeah, they despite did fine. Elvis. But it's still very frustrating. And reading their autobiography, their aesthetic ambitions were never fulfilled. They never got to write an original Broadway musical, for example. They never got to write a whole movie musical. And they had big plans to do that with Elvis and Elijah Kazan. And we're putting the deal together. And it's one of those what-ifs that I at least like to fantasize about. Like, what if Elvis had done a serious movie with serious music by Lieber and Stoller? Yeah. That would have been a complete game changer. Yeah. And, and, you know, would have changed the whole history of rock and roll. Elvis did movies. The Beatles did movies. Briefly, Elvis yeah. did movies well and then badly, and then the Beatles did movies very well but briefly, and after that, it's never been a career path for rock and rollers since. Right, right. It doesn't. Well, it doesn't make sense. I mean, actually, there were a lot of during the British invasion. There, there were a lot of uh, 
bands making movies. Sure, I, 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 I've been trying to find a copy of uh, uh, Catch Us If You Can or the having Dave a, Clark Five. Yeah, the which, Dave Clark Five movie, which yeah. I hear is excellent. Yeah, it is. I saw it in the eighties. It's directed uh, by a major director who did Emerald Forest and um, a bunch of stuff later on. Yeah, um, I can't remember John Borman. I want to say, but uh, but anyway. But that wasn't a sustained path for those guys. That right. was a one-off, do the exploitation and get out. So there's no more, there's no modern Bing Crosby or Frank Sinatra that's a music star, a movie star, all-around entertainer. That's no longer a dream. But right. it was sort of the thing that would, when you, when you, if you're a rock fan and you read about 50s musicians, it always seems like they're going off the wrong path trying to be the all-around entertainer. And you're like, why are they doing this? Well, this is why they're doing it, because this was the road to right. success. Right, and, and because, you know, it proved to be sustainable for Elvis. I mean, even those bad movies, it didn't matter that they were bad movies. Yeah, they it, made money. And it, made they money made for money Elvis. for everybody. Yeah. So why change it? Because it was a and, career. And wouldn't you in. like to have a, a piece of that? You know, just go in for four weeks and, and cavort around Hollywood for a while and, you know, record an album and then go back to, you know, hanging out. However, doing things like recording Do the Clam kind of killed Elvis. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's well, the there was no quality control. Um, the directors that could have made him a better actor, a more viable uh, attraction were put off by once again the colonel and his I think the colonel figured that if if I can make a thousand dollars today I I don't care about making a hundred thousand dollars in a year yeah it was all very short-term yeah small con operations because more and more of the movie budgets would go to Elvis that meant less money for directors less money for cat for sets less money for other actors and, right. you know, the songwriting quality. But I don't want to get too bogged down in Elvis because we're not, you know, you, you say in the book you're not doing a great man history right. of music. This is a social, cultural history. But things like the way cinema interacted with movies, that's part of the cultural history. Right. And there were a lot of rock and roll movies, but they were like jukebox uh, movies where the action, such as it was, would be on for 10 minutes and then... You got three minutes of Fats Domino or, you know, whoever, which was basically a performance video as as we know them now. The kind of thing you can dial up on, on YouTube and you want to see Fats Domino doing Blueberry Hill. Well, sure, there's a couple of movies where he did that and all you got to do is just snip that part out of the movie. And actually, you're, you're seeing the good part. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of a cultural treasure. And that's one of the ways to enjoy the series. And we'll have all the YouTube links to lots of videos and lots of movies and the songs, of course. But there was a bunch of guys left behind at Sun or that came to Sun shortly after Elvis left. And Sam Phillips, you could argue, you know, Elvis was not the visionary behind rock and roll. He wanted to be a crooner. And right. he had the talent but Sam Phillips was the one who had the vision. It's documented that this is what he, the kind of thing he wanted to capture was people's unconscious moments, you know, people when they're performing in an uninhibited way, in a right. non self conscious way. And when Elvis burst into That's All Right, that's what Sam Phillips wanted. That's, right. what, that's what the fans wanted when Elvis started shaking his hips on stage. And, El and Sam Phillips was able to sort of not duplicate Elvis. You could never duplicate Elvis, but he had Johnny Cash, he had Carl Perkins, he had Jerry Lee Lewis. He was still into the wild anarchic spirit, um, at least for a while, uh, that, that Elvis had unleashed. You know, it, it was like by the time he 
was sort of economically forced to give up Elvis, he really didn't care because he knew there was more of that stuff out there. You know, so I lose this one. So I don't become a billionaire. Fine. You know, I'll, I'll be a multimillionaire with these other guys. Yeah, and the $35,000 in cold hard cash he got for Elvis let him secure the distribution he would need to break Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis as big national stars, right. which as he'd well never been able to do for Invest in, in Holiday Inn. Yes. Which was a really smart thing to do. Yes. Get in on the ground floor of that? Yes, sir. Yeah, Sam Phillips is one of these stories of somebody who is gifted, who does well and does who does good and does well for himself by doing good. Right. So a happy story. Yeah. But the story of his performers Carl Perkins, we talked a little bit about he, you know, we've talked about this actuarial red line. Uh, for Elvis, it's being drafted. For Carl Perkins, it was the bad car wreck he had after yeah. his first TV show. His career never fully recovered. He went on to make some great music, but he never was the rock star that... But you also talk about, you know, actuarial. Um, he was older. A and, you know, when Elvis surpassed him with blue suede shoes, because back in those days, it was okay to cover... It was know, expected. Do, right. A, a, and um, he said, well, look, I'm married. I have kids. You know, I could never be Elvis all the way. So God bless him. Yeah. A, and, you know, it, I mean, he did have an extreme drinking problem after a while. I was going to bring that up. A, and uh, he was very fortunate that Johnny Cash allowed him uh, to be on his show as a as an opening act yeah. for years and years and years. Um, and eventually, you know, he, he did sober up and, and he, he still had those guitar chops. And the Beatles covering so many of his songs. Well, yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, it, it turns out that he's created a legacy which other people could tap into. And, you know, I'm sure he died a very happy man. I would hope so. I would I, hope so. Well, he also... Um, I remember seeing him at South by Southwest, and, and he had his son, Carl Jr., with him, and he was a bad guitarist. You know, I'm thinking, wow, it's in the genes here. A badass guitarist. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're trading licks on stage, and I'm going, whoa! Yeah, and, and, and Johnny Cash has a similar, has a bigger career arc. Johnny Cash goes on to become one of the great country stars of the 60s and 70s and the late 50s, and... Sam Phillips and Sun Records were totally able to to capitalize on that. Oh yeah, and and had many huge hit singles with Johnny Cash. And they were putting out uh, singles well into the '60s by yeah. Cash. <laughs> yeah, he, one of the great betrayals of Sam Phillips's life is when Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins leave him for Columbia Records. Johnny Cash lies to his face about, you know, Johnny, are you going to Columbia Records? Oh no, Sam, I'm not. Right. But he had already signed the paperwork. But he gave he left Sam Phillips a big backlog of recordings. Right, that, so there, there was stuff to put out, much the same as happened with Little Richard when he went into the ministry, um, leaving behind you know a bunch of stuff for uh, Good Dog and Smalley for one. Yeah, so they were able to exploit that. They just weren't able to continue to get product from him, and it was a much much smaller deal. Cash. Um, yeah, I mean, he kept reinventing himself, uh, and uh, it was—it's a really interesting story how how he did that. Uh, the other guy, of course, is is Jerry Lee Lewis, who fatally injured his career uh, in 1958 uh, by getting married. 
to a 14 year old 13 some yeah 13 uh and his cousin cousin, yeah and taking her to england he probably could have got away with it if he had kept her under wraps well he probably could have gotten away with it if he hadn't left the country if he hadn't insisted on taking her on the tour or they had gotten married after he got back and because or if he'd gotten divorced before well, yeah, if he'd waited for his, his second wife's divorce to come through, he still had five months to go on that. And um, But the thing was that it was shocking. I mean, she was complicit in this. She told the judge when they got married that she was 20. Hmm. And they didn't we, check her paperwork. Check her paperwork? Hell, you seen photographs of her from then? 20 years old? Uh-uh. No way. <laughs> I mean, if anybody looks like a young teenage girl... She did, a- and and yet it is true that it was uh, it it could have been legal in some states, not in Mississippi where they got married. It was the age of consent was seventeen in Mississippi. Yeah, and her father, who was Jerry Lee's bass player, went along with this sort of reluctantly, sure. but did eventually go along with it. And they did have a long marriage and have children together. So yeah, yeah, you know there there was a love relationship, and she did grow into adulthood uh, with. So it wasn't purely exploitive, but still it just. It looked horrific, and it, it played into stereotypes of Southerners. Right. That Jerry Lee then played on even more. Right. And well, when, he, I mean, he was the wild, uncontrollable hillbilly. And he was. And when he was went he? on stage <laughs> and the English fans booed him because of the scandal, he gave him a big F you, and it was a disaster. Right. Well, he, uh, he the tour was canceled in, in the middle of the of the uh, itinerary and, and he was shipped back home where investigative reporters at the Memphis uh, newspaper had discovered all this dirt on him and his career at Sun never really recovered from that. In fact, it would take him, I'm trying to remember when I, because it was after I was, I was getting free records, so it was around 1968 that uh, the really great country stuff started coming out. Yeah, because as late as like 64, he's playing the Star Club with the Nashville Teens backing him up. That's a is, great live album. Yeah, that is what, and was not released in the United States. Amazing. Until, I don't know, the 80s, the 90s? It's unbelievable because it's one of the best rock and roll yeah. records if You want to know what the, what the deal was like? I mean, and, you know, you got to wonder, the Nashville Teens were not that great a band, um, what well, they were you, perfectly. I mean, they were really good backup performers. Yeah. Well, you 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 yeah. wonder, you know, what if he had his homeboys there backing yeah. him up? How you know incendiary would this performance have been? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's so he was still cranking that stuff out on the road. There's there's a, um, a a really badly recorded, by which I mean sonically, um, couple of albums called the greatest live show on earth that he did when he was with Mercury, but it sounds so bad. And there, it, the, the album seems to me it was like 13 minutes long or something like that. Not enough. So you, yeah. yeah, you don't get the, the feeling. Yeah, the Star Club, Alabama. unlike the Beatles at the Star Club, which is an atrocious sonic document, the Jerry Lee at the Star Club is a beautiful sonic document. Well, nobody was trying to record the Beatles. Yeah, it was just there, there. catching them off the board. Yeah, somebody, somebody taped it, but... Uh, you know, it was never intended for... Uh... Yeah. And the thing with Jerry Lee, though, is 
this is a guy who was incredibly gifted, that Sam Phillips knew Elvis intimately. He knew Johnny Cash intimately. He, he knew Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, Ike Turner, and Jerry Lee was the guy. Howlin' Wolf, of course, is Sam Phillips' great musical love, but Jerry Lee was the guy he thought, this is the guy with right. the talent that can do anything, that has this incredible love of music, this incredible performing gift. I can... This is the guy I want to bet everything. Right, on. and he did. I mean, he, he really shortchanged a lot of the other people who were coming up at the same time just so that he could put all of his resources in into Jerry Lee Lewis. And what did he get? He got this guy who turned toxic on him. Yeah, and that, it's kind of ironic because Elvis goes to Germany, falls in love with a 14-year-old of his own, and Priscilla, right. and, but does it in a controlled way with the family's consent waits until she's a little older to marry her and it's it's never a career damaging scandal for well Elvis. nobody knew about her yeah i mean she eventually wound up in graceland um but nobody i mean graceland was like buckingham palace you could not get in there uh, unless elvis really wanted you in there yeah and by the time he marries her she's what 19 20 yeah something like that yeah so there's no scandal but really there's not that i mean jerry lee lewis has this reputation, a lot of it's deserved, and, and I mean, and there's deaths involved later in his life. So there's a whiff of brimstone around Jerry Lee that there just isn't with Elvis. Right, But right. he's not a complete, and he's not a monster. I mean, this isn't Ted Bundy or something. Right. This is a gifted musician who gave a lot of positive things to the world. He's also a wild man, and, and you know. Uh, you know, I think the gift is that you don't think about what you do. And that works on stage. It doesn't work with your private life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he, you know, the, the boundary is just not there. Yeah. And around this time, you have this really bizarre thing where one day Johnny Cash is recording in the studio. Jerry Lee happens to be there. And he's not Jerry Lee Lewis yet. He hasn't had right. a single yet. Carl, they call Carl Perkinson because he's on a shopping trip, and, and they get him to come by the studio because Elvis drops by. Right. And they see this, wow. They also called Cash. Oh, they called in Cash. Yeah. I and, thought it was a Cash session. No, no. Oh. It was just, it, there was no session. Ah, it was just Elvis They were just hanging out. It was, it was around Christmas. El, Elvis was home for Christmas, and, and the, the, this sort of... You know, sitting around the piano singing hymns, which is just something those people did. There's a lot of, you know, stories about all of those guys doing stuff like that. And um, Sam saw that this was happening, calls Cash, gets him in there, calls the newspaper, and he sends, uh, they send a photographer by. And document Andy records it. And it's years. Well, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, it's years before the session tapes come out. But when they do, they're a real gold mine. Yeah. And, and and some incredible music. I mean, it's not polished music. It's not completed music. They do a few songs fully. But to me, it's the chatter of hearing these guys talk about music. Right. And the almost telepathy, because they're all so musically gifted, that they can sing a phrase to each other that a dullard like me would have to have explained in paragraph after paragraph. But they're so gifted, they can just, ah, I know exactly what you mean, man. Right. And then, and when they're singing the praises of Chuck Berry, for example, it's really amazing. Yeah, well, they, they, they were artists. They they didn't. There was competition, but they were generous in recognizing gifts of other people. I mean, none of those guys could have done a Chuck Berry song. 
Um, and I don't think Chuck Berry would have done a very good job with any of their songs. Yeah, I mean, some of them covered some Chuck. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but that, you know, but that the song had already been set. Yeah, yeah. Then I'm and, Chuck and Berry it was song. it was like playing a piece of classical music at that point. Yeah. So, we've we've talked about Jerry Lee's Bright Line. We talked about Little Richard's Bright Line, which happened in '57. But Specialty Records tried to keep going. Not only did they have the catalog of Little Richard tunes to keep putting out, but they had Larry Williams. And we got an argument at one point about whether or not he was from L.A. or New Orleans. He was born in New Orleans, but came up in L.A. Right. And so, hence the confusion. But Larry Williams has a run of hits that are not as big as Little Richard, but are hits. And kept yeah, and going. once again, you're, deal you're dealing with the secondary characters uh, in a story which who could have been better exploited. Um, but I, I don't know. I guess Art Roop was running out of juice or something. And there was the payola thing, too. At some point, it just got too much for him. And, and he, he decided to go buy and sell real estate in downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, which is a much more lucrative, I'm sure. <laughs> less That's also. why he's still alive and... <laughs> and uh, a very happy, rich man. And it's not just specialty that's that's tapering off, but a number of records that had been big parts of the R&B explosion in the early 50s are tapering off too. Aladdin and Modern. And right, right. Modern was very lucky in that they had B.B. King. And they held on to B.B. King. And B.B. King was not a particularly good businessman. I think he must have gotten a manager at some point who said... B, look at this. Look at the money you're losing by hanging with these guys. Because eventually he got a deal with um, the same label that Ray Charles got a deal with, ABC. ABC Paramount. Yeah, and they that sustained him and turned him into a much bigger star. Um, it's probably a good thing that he waited that long or that he had to wait that long because then he turned he he very quickly turned into not just a star but a revered master. But B.B. King kept modern alive uh, through all of the 60s, uh, 50s, sorry. And um, so they, they were able to, to continue. Uh, they, they lasted, I think they even lasted into the soul era. There's a bunch of odd records that came out. But B.B. King was, you know, the meat and potatoes. Um, Aladdin, there was nothing you could do with. Aladdin was wedded to old style jump blues and end of discussion. Just couldn't change with the times. And, and reading Goralnik's new bio of Sam Phillips, you know, he attempted to organize a coalition of independent record labels. Mm -hmm. I mean, he at least felt like the, the, the scales were set against the independent records and that the day of the independent record company was over or well, ending. He was wrong um, because the, the, the independents, I mean, a lot of the independents, I mean, Capital was an independent. Um, that They were owned by Wallach's Music City and some songwriters and, you know, this this bunch of businessmen and, and, and music businessmen in Los Angeles. And um, they eventually were acquired by EMI, which was a British company, as an investment. But um, the... Uh, there were lots of lots of independent labels out there. It's just that we don't recognize them as independent because they've been, you know, part of a conglomerate for so very long. And Atlantic Records is a classic example of that. Right. Atlantic didn't go non-independent until 71 or something when they joined up with the Warner group and, and uh, 
Warner's Seven Arts. Yeah, and by that time, though, they'd signed the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and become such a behemoth themselves. Right, that, that... exactly. They, but but back in, in 1958, I mean, Atlantic was, they were struggling like everybody else. And, you know, they, they struggled for a long time. They kept uh, signing foreign acts, which was something that a sophisticated label, a bigger label, would do, but they mostly picked bad ones. And, um, you know, they, they were just not able to uh, to move out of rhythm and blues, and they really shouldn't have tried to, because they would have been better off, you know, putting their money into more of the same until they eventually would hire, you know, would, would sign uh, better quality artists they but they 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 did have a, a pretty good bottom line in terms of, of quality they um well labor and stoller at their peak with atlantic in this period right the coasters uh among others and these these songs that are doing with the coasters are pretty crazy i mean you know yakety yak or charlie brown these are like mini plays these are narrative stories right they're funny but they also rock well and they also are are they're subversive? Yakety yak, you know, it is about my parents are bugging me, which is exactly what teenagers want to hear, but nobody was daring to actually come out and say this. You know, your parents could be wrong. Huh. No wonder people got so upset by rock and roll. Yeah, this was the father knows best era. Right. And yeah, and you know, it's it's a shame. That, uh, for instance, uh, the silhouettes never were guided into more of a career because, you know, um, um, get a job, get a job was was a real. Once you analyze that song or look a little closer at it, it's a really remarkable piece of protest music. Yeah, it's not just teen versus parent. It's also the econ economy that they're right teen about. versus economy and presumably parent versus economy if if mom who's you know at him to get a job was doing better it wouldn't be so important that, yeah. that you know a teenager who lacks skills and lacks education so the the jobs that are available to him are very limited you know, it, it would be important for him to get a job and, and this is what we find in the 60s is that by now the parents are are well enough off that kids are all about leisure. Yeah, but in the fifties, and that you can't leave out the aspect, the African American aspect. Well, yeah, that as too. Always, they're on the worst end of the economy. Right, which Chuck Berry was good at at noting. You know, he does things like Too Much Monkey Business, which is about a kid who got a job. Yeah, for all the good it did him. <laughs> And one other star that the Atlantic had around this time was Chuck Willis, the King of the Strong. Right. Yeah, there's, who knows what would have happened to him. You know, he was recording such dull, somebody sent me a, uh, I guess, well, it was, it was epic, sent me a reissue of, of all of his sides for OK. I've never played the second disc just because the first disc puts me to sleep so bad. It's boring, just like, you know, plodding tempo Urban blues, big deal. It's a lot like Little Richard's uh, work, right? Before, before his specialty. specialty, and I guess Jerry Wexler or Ahmed Erdogan heard him and went, "God, what a waste of resources! Let's get this guy some material." And there was a dance craze coming up, 
which was the stroll, which was one of these things that took off thanks to television. Um, my very first memory of seeing teenagers dance was seeing them do the stroll on American Bandstand. So it was a big deal. And what were they playing when they were doing the stroll? I think they were playing Chuck Willis. Fitting. And and it's a sort of musical thing, a dance thing, where the kids come through a line. There's two lines. Boy boy line, girl line. And you reach over, if you're at the top of the line, you reach over with the girl, and, and you sashay down to the end, and you do it to the rhythm of the song. And um, so, yeah, I mean, he put out several records, singles, that were, you know, big hits because they were exactly what the kids were doing. And all of a sudden, he uh, gets a bleeding ulcer and dies on the operating table at the age of 30. Yeah, an enormous waste. And he had a a couple of singles in the can that they put out. Uh, what am I living for? Hang up my rock and roll shoes. Yeah, that, which are both sort of doom obsessed. I don't want to hang up my rock and roll. Well, why should you? You know. Yeah. Oh, you're dead. <laughs> yeah, it's very much like Eddie Cochran. We'll talk about his his last song is Three Steps to Heaven. Right. Or you know, or Hank Williams Sr. doing I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive. I mean, it, you know, you wonder is there some premonition? Eerie prescience going on. Yeah. yeah. And so you know, Eddie Cochran is this kid who's a session musician in Hollywood. I mean, he's very much like Buddy Holly in that this kid is precocious. Right. I mean, he is very young. He's he's recording. He's not recording, but he's writing songs. He's writing hit songs, uh, country songs with Hank Cochran, who has no relationship, no relation to yeah, him. Yeah, but an incredible talent in his own. Oh, way. yeah. Hank Cochran, I mean, you know, he, he, the list of country songs that he wrote by himself after Eddie died was, was uh, just tremendous but eddie was also deeply into technology which um was very unusual because recording engineers were treated like brain surgeons you know it's like don't touch this dial only i know what this does don't move this microphone only i can do that and you know everybody submitted to that (laughs) our engineer is heckling us here right but, uh, but Eddie Cochran sees control. Of yeah, the but he production. goes, hey, you know, you can bounce tracks back and forth. You've got these new two-track recorders. You can record on this track and then bounce it over to this track and then record something else on the other track, and you can build up you, you can build up a whole record. You can play all the instruments on your record as long as you're not trying to have a, you know, string section or something behind you. So he records something like Summertime Blues, you know, which is all him. Yeah, it's something know? that Stevie Wonder and Prince would make commonplace in the 70s and 80s, but... Well, they also had better technology. Well, sure. But uh, up to this point, Les Paul is probably the only person who's done right. it. Right, and, and everybody knows that despite his being real popular uh, and, and his shows with Mary Ford are are quite wonderful, that he was a bit of a nut. Yeah. So, you know, eccentric. it's like, oh, yeah, Les is back in his garage doing something, you know, he's got all these tape recorders and... But, you know, it it was, uh, they, I guess, when when was the world is waiting for a sunrise? In the early 50s, I think. Yeah, that, that, was, that was all them. Yeah. And that actually encouraged Patti Page to record duets with herself. 
And and but there was this aura. You're right that Les Paul had this aura of nerd. I'm the nerd in the garage doing amazing things. Right. Eddie Cochran was the man behind the curtain. Don't pay any attention to the man behind the curtain. I'm the sexy rock right. and roller with the guitar. As you see in the girl can't help it when he comes on the television and and the maid goes nuts. Yeah. And the Everly Brothers have a story about touring Australia with Eddie Cochran and watching in awe as he seduced the stewardess on the plane. It's a long <laughs> flight, but they were both like, I've never seen anybody go from zero to 50 in a, such a short period of time with a woman as Eddie Cochran was able to do. And, you know, if Don and Phil, who were no slouches themselves, are impressed with your game, he must have had some game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and yet he, he was just a quick flash. Uh, on the screen, and and he was gone. Yeah, he dies in a tragic car accident in England in 1960, touring with Gene Vincent, another ill-fated rock and roller. Vincent survives, but is basically crippled for life after that. Well, he was crippled Already before crippled. he got in the car because yeah. he was nuts. And had a motorcycle accident. That well, yeah, when he was in the Navy, yeah, his bad leg, which yeah. he, he always had. And uh, and and the, the the wreck and tragedy, I think, of it. He never really recovered from that. But Eddie Cochran. Is somebody that I think it's easy to sleep on, but has a nice body of work, and is it's a live question of what would Eddie Cochran have done next? Because unlike, you know, Elvis, you can see going off into all round entertainer world, and Buddy Holly, working with you know Gordon Jenkins and doing string yeah. and stuff. Eddie Cochran seems to have been carrying the rock and roll torch to the very end, and he was in Hollywood. Yeah, so he could have jumped real quickly to Capitol or something. He might have become the first performer who was also a record executive. Yeah. I mean, he, he was really obviously brilliant and, and obviously thinking all the time about, you know, what's the best advantage. Yeah, so we'll never know what what he might have done. But in the meantime, you know, we can enjoy the music he had. And somebody else who was doing interesting stuff around this time who never really made it enormously big was Wanda Jackson, who has a case for being the greatest of the early women rock and roll. Oh, she, I, I think there is no competition. I mean, her nearest competition, I guess, would be Brenda Lee, who is too considerably... Young. Well, she was too young. Also, just in terms of talent, considerably south of where she should have been. Wanda had a knack for picking up really weird, eccentric... Uh, rocking hits, but she also had this terrible ambivalence about whether to abandon country, and and I think that's that's she would put out a a rock and roll record and and it would be shocking enough that um, it didn't get much radio play, but if she had done two or three in a row and gone, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing. Um, she might very well have broken through. Yeah, it's hard to say. And I think that the role of sexism and also women culturally being more pressured to be inhibited and to control themselves played a big factor. Right. And there's no African-American analog to Wanda Jackson. You, you've got performers like Ruth Brown and Laverne Baker, but you don't have women who are guitarists and singers no. in the same way. And Wanda Jackson's like a girl version of one of the rockabilly cats. I know. And there were actually, there were several uh, female Elvises out there. there. There was Alvis Leslie, who I think probably had a different name when she was born. Um, and there, there were a couple of other rockabilly girls, but they were, they weren't on major labels. Well, Alvis Leslie was, actually. but um, They weren't major talents. They weren't major talents, and they, they didn't 
pursue it hard enough. Because look, being being a female performer in any era is going to be hard, uh, and or you know different challenges than men get. It's the classic dancing backwards in high heels. Right, exactly. Situation exactly. That all women face. Um, but Wanda, you know, Wanda to me is like Billy Lee Riley or a lot of these other early rockabilly people that you, if you're a rockabilly fan now and you go back and you unearth this stuff, it's really exciting and it's great rock and roll. And you wonder why wasn't this bigger? But I think one of your points when we talked about Billy Lee Riley was there was no such thing as sustained cult performers back in the right, 50s. Right, You couldn't, you know, put out five singles before you made it big because the investment was just too great. You know, even for Sam Phillips, who was far better off than, than most of these people, you know, how many dud records do you want to put out? And, and do... I know really why these are duds. Yeah, people are just throwing. I, things I could at the be wall. wrong, you know. I, yeah. I like this record, but I could be wrong. Um, there's also a question that well, there was resistance uh, on radio for not wanting to put too much of this stuff in the mix, and there was problems getting these people to tour because they didn't have the money to do that. I mean, you know, the, we have come up in a culture where. Warner Brothers puts out an album and then subsidizes the tour by the act. The album doesn't sell, but it sells a little better because of the tour. So you go back and make, you know, you lose money on three or four albums. Joni Mitchell is the classic yeah. story. You lose money on three or four albums before you even get warm. Yeah, and, and that's that's something that, that, that happened in the 60s and 70s and on into the 80s to a lesser extent in the 90s and is now dead. Yeah. We're back to an era where they're just throwing out hits and seeing what clicks. Artists are much more on their own resources. To and like, to like in the, in the uh, 50s, careers are shorter. Yeah. Much shorter. Much, I mean, what's Britney Spears doing today? She's the queen of Vegas, actually. Ah, so how about Lady Gaga? Lady Gaga was a big star. She's an all-around entertainer. She was on American That's, Horse. Right. So, yeah, it's very much more like back to the 50s where people right. are, have gone showbiz in a way and rock and roll. Oh, rock and roll's dead in 2017. Yeah. And it's been dead for about 15, maybe 25 years. But that's not... We're talking about rock and roll's birth. And one guy who survived the payola scandals was Dick Clark. Right. Who came out on top of all this stuff, even though he was as sleazy or more sleazy than anybody going. Yeah. He just knew what he was doing. Well, he, he was, everybody looks at Dick Clark and they go, oh, this boyish guy, he must have been just out of his teens. He wasn't. He had a very boyish face right into his 60s, you know, and it wasn't all plastic surgery. He just looked that way, so it was really as as opposed to you know this this kind of dogged looking Jewish guy from Cleveland, Alan, Alan Freed. Freed, who looked like he might have been shady, and you know that's not even anti-Semitism. That's all about just he looked a little sleazy. He looked like he'd been up drinking all night, which yeah. he probably had been. <laughs> yeah, and and Dick Clark, you know. He, he looked like somebody went to bed early and got up early. And... He he looked like yeah, like somebody who'd gotten into the music business because his career in the Boy Scouts was uh, fading out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, he was no Boy Scout boy. That when when he, I mean, there's that famous but un 
verifiable quote of him standing on the steps of the courthouse after one of his hearings. And uh, one of his friends going, geez, Dick, you, did they put you through the ringer? You're not looking too good. He's, oh, man, I was up all night dissolving companies. <laughs> and they had so many shell companies and so many entangled business interests that <laughs> when the congressional investigation came, he had to clean up his act. But he did clean up his act. And American to some Bandstand, extent. Yeah, American Bandstand beats out Alan Freed's show and becomes, like, it goes on for another 25 or 30 years. Well, and it becomes the uh, the bedrock of Dick Clark Enterprises, which wound up, I mean, of all the bizarre things, I'm sure that if you had walked up to Dick Clark during the payola hearings and said, someday, son, you will be running New Year's Eve in Times Square. And he would have gone, what? <laughs> yeah. And he became just an American business, entertainment business. Mogul. Yeah. Mogul. You know, people, people talk about, you know, Geffen. You know, he, he was the early template for that kind of stuff. And and another guy's having a, a career peak. We talked about a little bit in reference to the Million Dollar Quartet, but Chuck Berry is still out there and is releases Johnny B. Good in 1950. Right. This, this is probably artistically his finest year because he was he was recording i mean one of the things about chuck berry that that you can't do anymore he because it was new he was recording songs about rock and roll they weren't just rock and roll songs yeah we've talked about this a little bit where i called him the trotsky of rock and roll the 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 poet laureate of rock and roll i mean he made the myth of rock and roll right Right, because he kept repeating it. But, you know, Johnny B. Good sounds like an autobiographical song. It wasn't. No, he was not a country boy. No. He didn't live by a shack. He was a middle-class kid from St. Louis. He, 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 saw, he saw this shack by the side of the Mississippi River, you know, on tour. And he thought, oh, I bet there's a guitar-playing kid there who's dreaming of going to Chicago and making it. And, you know, okay. Wrote that one. Yeah, and then he puts this brilliant... I mean, his guitar style has been developing through all this. His, right from Maybelline on, his guitar is very distinctive. Right. And but and Johnny B. Good, he's absolutely perfected it. Mm-hmm. And, every, you know, Dickie Betts or so many guitarists, Keith Richards, George Harrison, so many guitarists from the 60s and 70s will tell you that that was their guitar bible. Right. Because he he, he now was in full control of what he could do. He he really, I don't think he innovates at all after about 1958. He just refines. You know, okay, I got it. I haven't worked out all the implications yet, but hey, every song I write, I'm doing that. Yeah, yeah, because no particular place to go in 1964 is basically a Chuck Berry song. Right. It's not a dramatic he, he, It could have been something that Chess had in the can from... 58. Yeah, and, and it's interesting you bring that up, the perfection of the formula, because none of the first wave of rock and rollers have the kind of like Beatles or Bob Dylan type or Beach Boys type career where they go through, you know, multiple phases. There's no Stevie Wonders of the 50s that, right. that have these enormous, you know, caterpillar to butterfly sort of transformations. They they get a groove, they perfect it, and then and they explore the implications of that, but they don't have these... You know, transformation. Yeah, the only person, well, I guess that's not even from the 50s. I was going to say Carol King yeah. is an example of that, but she doesn't even really come on the scene at this point. Yeah, no, she, she'll come up with the Brill Building artists in a little bit. But one thing that is happening is that as part of this backlash theme, 
and Dick Clark in Philadelphia, artists like artists and quote like Frankie Avalon and Fabian are suddenly being foisted up on the American public. And maybe it's a little harsh to say, "Oh, this was foisted." I mean, some fans did have a genuine reaction to this stuff. But going back, well, so, some of it was, you know, what, what is available to hear on the radio, and there's always this teenage need to um, find expression through popular music at this point. Um, so if you sort of take the crooner formula and add a teaspoon of idiocy to it <laughs> so that you're talking at a teenage level, you know, these are not songs that Sinatra would no. have, or his A&R men would have considered at all. These were songs that were in the Sinatra mold, but crafted for teenage years. Yeah, and, and not so much musically as the lyrics. Yeah, and 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 the the common thread among these performers is that very good looking and do good television. Right, um, and and a lot of them went through Bob Marcucci's uh, basically finishing school. Fabian can't sing to this day. Yeah, and it had a run of hit singles. Yeah, because he was plastered on the the teen fan magazines. And on American Bandstand. And on American Bandstand all the time and lip syncing a track that had been cleaned up to the best that their technology... I mean, God, thank you that there is no uh, auto-tune in 1958. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> And uh, one guy who did have talent that's in that's in this trend is Bobby Darren, who's right. with Atlantic, who could not wait to get away from the splish splish splash um, kind of songs and, and go where he he wanted to be Sinatra. I think you know that that Bobby Rydell uh, also wanted to be Sinatra because he he kept trying for years and years and years after his star had faded. Um, but, um, you know, Fabian didn't want to be Sinatra. He, he wanted Sinatra's money in girls. Yeah, Fabian but, didn't have any aesthetic ambitions. Yeah, but, but uh, well, Darren had been diagnosed with um, a heart condition real early on, and he knew he was going to die young. And so his ambition was really ruthless, and he did not hesitate I mean, it was probably 15 seconds after midnight on the day that his contract with Atlantic was going to expire that he was out on the street looking. Yeah, he probably laid the groundwork for that deal beforehand. Right. And, but the thing about Darren is he wrote Splish Splash. I mean, he was a talented songwriter, and it's pretty credible rock and roll for that time. Yeah. It's not the wildest thing, but it's a decent song. Well, he, 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 was, he was, I think, a cold-blooded um, marketing guy. Okay, how do I make a first impression? Yeah, and how do I get into this market? What's this market hungry for? Right, exactly. They want clean East Coast rock and rollers. Soon enough, though, he, he's doing Mac the Knife. Which is brilliant and yep. a totally dramatic reinterpretation of the song. It's right. sort of influenced by I was so disappointed songs. when I heard the original. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that happens with a lot of the 30s Great American Songbook stuff. If you go back and listen to the you know, the original Broadway cast version of a Cole Porter song, it's not an art song. No. It's just a hack entertainer cranking out something to entertain people on Broadway. And it was only when people like Sarah Vaughn and Billie Holiday and Frank Sinatra get a hold of these songs. And, they, yeah, and reinterpret them. Yeah. Go, wait a minute, there, there's eight bad songs in this musical and one that isn't. Yeah. 
I'll record that one. <laughs> but it's actually, you know, I keep imputing this to the artist. Back in those days, it was the A&R guy, artists and repertoire. That came to mean talent scout, you know, that the A&R guy would yeah. be in the audience to see your band. But back in 1958, there was, it, unless you were like some kind of Negro on some kind of R&B label, there, there was no choosing your own material. You know, the Chess Brothers were perfectly happy to let Chuck Berry record his own stuff. Because they had a proven track record. Right. Um, some young girl who wants to record for them, they're going to have somebody behind the scenes helping her find the material that suits her voice. And in most instances, that was, that could, well, not in most instances, but sometimes that could be a very productive thing. Oh, yeah. Or somebody like Jerry Wexler or Liberon Stoller, who really did know the music, had a real feel for the material, could put the right song in the right singer's Right, exactly. And they, or, or they knew songwriters, you know, hey, we got this new artist and this is the kind of thing they do well, this is the kind of stuff they don't do well. What do you got? Yeah. And songwriters always have something. Yeah. And that, and that, God, I can't find a piece of paper. I, call me back tomorrow. <laughs> They're busy writing. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're, you mentioned Carol King, but this is the beginnings of this Brill Building Renaissance. Where... Right, which which is that teen ready material had to be available for when the A and R guys are coming around, you know. And and that's the there just weren't these old guys. Well, Aldon, I mean, to go into the future. Um, Don Kirshner was a young guy who wrote songs. With Bobby Darren. Yeah, but Al Nevins was a much older guy who saw one of his songs recorded by the Platters and go, whoa, this teenage market, where can I find it? Well, maybe not a teenager, but I need a young guy who knows business and who knows songwriting. And, and so that's why Carol King's employers, Aldon Music, immediately started running to the top because they had kids writing songs for them. Yeah, and you needed songs for people like Frankie Avalon and Fabian who are never going to write their own material. Right, exactly. Because they, they were into the showbiz part. They, they, they lived for the moment that the MC in front of the orchestra goes, and now, ladies and gentlemen, you know, what led to that is of very little concern as long as it led to selling records and putting their faces out there. These are the people that um, Michael Bloomfield, I think, coined this phrase, but I was interviewing him, and he said, beloved performers. This is, he says, I will never be a beloved performer. This is the antithesis of what I want for myself. But Elton John, Sophie Tucker, you know, has her legs sawed off because she's got, I don't know, diabetes or something. And she's out in Vegas with a wooden leg, like 24 hours later. She can't live, she can live without her leg, but she can't live without being on stage. Yeah. And, that, and, and so that's what these guys are. are. They're, they're beloved performers. And they want nothing more than to, you know, be recording, probably be re-recording their classic songs when they're 55 years old. 
Yeah, and the, the idea of the self-contained creative unit like the Beatles or Bob Dylan would pioneer in the 60s doesn't exist at this point. It does. It exists in blues. In blues, and Buddy Holly is doing it and country, but it's not seen as the showbiz it's, idea. No, it's, it's, it's not the template that everybody works for. Those people are real outliers in terms of that. Yeah, and, and, and one thing that's going on around this time is the folk boom is, you know, we've had all through the 50s, you had Pete Seeger and the Weavers. Well, this is, a, this is the third folk boom. There was one based around left-wing activism in the Depression. Now, people who were in that, uh, most notably the Almanac Singers, which was a uh, a group that formed at a what sort of commune called... Yeah, Pete Seeger and, and uh, Will Hayes and Ronnie Gilbert, they formed the Weavers, which were... Um, which came out of left-wing activism. And burst out in the early 50s as a huge pop phenomenon. Right, thanks to Gordon Jenkins, And once then again. crushed by the McCarthy era right. communist witch hunts. But Pete Seeger, you know, is Johnny Appleseed. He, he will uncrate his banjo and perform anywhere. Once again, a beloved performer, but one with an agenda, with several agendas. One of which is, you can do this too. Yeah, you know, he, he puts out How to Play the Five-String Banjo, uh, which was a huge bestseller for Folkways Records. The other thing that was, once again from Folkways Records, was that all through this era, young people were discovering the Harry Smith Anthology, the, the uh, so-called Anthology of American Folk Music, which was no such thing. It was Harry Smith's record collection of traditionally inflected commercial music from the 1920s and 30s. And his only uh, concern was it had to be electrically recorded instead of acoustically recorded because the sound quality was better. So he got he got to curate, I guess is the word, songs, social music, and ballads. Three, two LP sets of this stuff and put it out. And bit by bit, people were discovering it. Um, some people were in a better uh, position to discover it. Mike Seeger, who was Pete's half-brother, um, younger guy, whose father was um, a folklorist. That's how Pete got into this in the first place. He, he was affiliated with Harvard, and um, his wife was actually a, a um, budding modern composer. Her string quartet is still played by uh, string quartets today. But um, So here he, he grew up in a, in a house with a folklorist for a father and a babysitter, a nanny, uh, for him and, and his, his sister, uh, Elizabeth Cotton, who came from the Carolinas somewhere and played Carolina-style uh, songs, not just blues, but she, I mean, she did have some blues in her repertoire, but she was basically from the songster era of, of black folk music. And so he got interested in all this music, and then he found that there were other people who had been listening to the Folkways Anthology, and one of them was a mathematician um, named um, Tom Paley, and one of them was a photographer and filmmaker named John Cohen. And they got together in Greenwich Village and formed the New Lost City Ramblers, who were an incredibly influential group because not only 
were they playing these instruments in a traditional style. They were playing traditional music in a traditional style, and they were really rigid with themselves, at least at first, in copying as exactly as possible what they heard on the 78s. And and I think it's no coincidence you're talking about college campuses, which is where Seeger really did his Johnny Appleseed work. Right. And, and that you talk about a lot of rock and roll teens gave up rock and roll when they went to college and became folk music fans. Or jazz fans. Yeah, this I want to get to the distinction you draw between intellectuals and sophisticates there. You say intellectuals become folk fans and sophisticates become jazz fans. What right. do you mean by that? I mean Playboy magazine. Ah, so the, if you read Playboy magazine, you were listening to jazz? Yeah, because one of the things you see in the early Playboys is incredibly detailed descriptions of high-fidelity units. Uh, part of what sold high-fidelity wasn't just classical music um, enthusiasts, but the fact was that jazz, I mean, and, and really uncompromising contemporary jazz, which was a popular music, not just for black people, but for sophisticated white people. So what you, you know, the Playboy pad, you have the girl over for martinis, you put on an Ahmad Jamal record, you know. Let's see what happens. Yeah, you yeah. never can tell. Whereas the intellectuals are into the folk scene. Well, they're also more political. You know, the, the civil rights movement was gathering steam at this point. Um, there was a... The nuclear disarmament uh, Yeah, movement. strong anti-bomb anti movement. That came from England, where Peggy Seeger, Mike's sister, had moved and married Ewan McCall, who was a Scottish communist. And um, also, uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott uh, was over there, uh, along with a guy whose name I forget, but who played banjo, and who's also somebody who wound up staying. And so the, here are these, you know, committed people, but they're, uh, McCall is writing folk-type songs for political dramas on BBC. But in America, it's just the kind of solidarity. Yeah, once again, Pete Seeger is, is an encourager here. Yeah. Uh, and... It's it's a way you know it, it, the discovery of community. You you leave high school, you leave your parents, you leave all the stuff you knew. You're becoming an adult, and yet there's a community of interest here, um, which doesn't have to be political. But usually, you know somebody who is politically inclined, even if all you want to do is is you know reproduce. Appalachian music of the 1930s. Yeah, but the commercial explosion that happens around this time with folk music has more to do with the Weavers' tradition of popularizing folk music by making it sound like pop music. And so you get these guys, the Kingston Trio, who are squeaky clean collegiates. Well, yeah, they, they came they came out of Stanford University, or at least the Stanford area, and um, originally they were playing Hawaiian music because two of them were, were from... Uh, were from Hawaii. I had no idea. And they found that wasn't... Well, then they started listening to Calypso. So they thought, ah, let's call ourselves the Kingston Trio after Kingston, Jamaica. You know, because maybe we can be a, a, a Calypso band. And then they find this guy who is a... Um, I don't know how to say this nicely. A marijuana distributor. <laughs> <laughs> With a lot of money. 
who he which he needs to launder. And he says, I'll manage you. So he, he says, hey, forget college campuses. You know, there are Broadway songs. There are these kind of light satirical songs like Tom Lehrer was writing, but there were other people also doing this. And, um, you know, there's, there's also folk songs which benefit from the kind of thing the Weavers were doing, but that's old-timey. We find, we find new material. So they put out an album. He would not. He got them signed to Capitol Records. He insisted in the contract that this was not a singles act. There would be no singles released from the Kingston Trio albums. Way ahead of his time. So what happens? One song on the album becomes a big hit on campus radio, and Capitol goes to the manager and says, can't we release this as a single? And he goes, oh, okay, because he doesn't think it's going to... It's it's yeah. a folk song from a guy in Kentucky about a murder, you know, and, and this is not top 40 material, but yeah, you want it so you can service campus radio stations, go ahead. Somehow, this gets on the radio, big time, on top 40 radio. Tom Dooley. Tom Dooley, yeah, which is a shit. real guy you can see. I think you can visit his grave... I'm not sure that criminals who were hung for what he was hung for um, are get what gravestones. get gravestones, but there are a lot of these kind of things in the South. And, and you know, he, there are newspaper articles about him being hung. And, hmm. and, it, and it sets the groundwork for, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary and the whole commercial folk. Th- these, these groups I, I call hootenanny bands because... I mean, the Kingston Trio were pretty much alone for 15 minutes, but then along come the Terriers, who are mostly actors, and um, I think one of them was in a later group uh, of the of the uh, the Weavers, and so this is another trio, and um, they do get the Calypso song, they get the Banana Boat song, Deo, and they have a huge hit with this. I mean, Alan Arkin was one of these people. That's crazy. And then all of a sudden there's the Chad Mitchell trio. And, you know, the it the domino effect. Because, look, three guys who can carry everything they need for the act go in a van from, or not even a van, you can do it in a car from campus to campus. And it doesn't have that icky political thing. It doesn't have that nerdy authenticity thing. It's a good time. And it's not rock and roll, and it's not jazz. And it's very white. Very white. Very, although one of the Terriers was black. Yeah, but but the overall package does not scream African-American Right. Culture. He just happened to be a groovy spade. Yeah. Not <laughs> one of those dangerous Negroes. Yeah, and so anyway, that's some of the stuff that's going on in 1958. The fundamental theme is the backlash against... The explosion, of, the uncontrolled explosion of rock and roll in our And it was easy to backlash because suddenly there were no up-and-coming personnel for rock and roll. So, yeah, we're at a crisis point. And we'll talk about where we go from there in 1959. Thanks, Ed. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be back with Ed to learn about 1959, the day the music died, and the emergence of a generation of new talents, including Phil Spector and Carole King, 
who romanticized rock and roll from the Brill Building. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. Thank you.